Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. I'm Stan Bunger, and this week on KCBS In-Depth, a look at the role of failure. Some quotes on the topic. Success is most often achieved by those who don't know that failure is inevitable. That's from Coco Chanel. I've not failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that won't work. Thomas Edison. And from the great basketball coach John Wooden, Failure isn't fatal, but failure to change might be. For a recent episode of the 10 Questions with Stan and Susan podcast, Susan Lee Taylor and I sat down with Chris Clearfield, the co-author of the new book, Meltdown, Why Our Systems Fail and What We Can Do About It. He's a commercial pilot and former derivatives trader who's written extensively about complexity and failure. Here's our interview. Chris, we see plenty of failure every day, from oil spills to train derailments, and in all kinds of locations, from the depths of the Gulf of Mexico to Mount Everest, big and small. You say all meltdowns have something in common. What is that related element? Yeah, so, I mean, there's, there's two, um, I think there's two aspects to it, right? One is that we see on the surface, we see our systems are failing more and more in um, kind of a set of similar ways. I mean, uh, you know, we have series of, in all those examples you talked about, we see that there are a series of kind of small failures that tend to snowball into these really big issues. And so that's something we see happening over and over in our society. And when, when we dug a little bit deeper um, in our research for the book, what we ended up seeing was that um, these systems, they share a couple of things in common. Um, they are, t- they tend to be complex, meaning they are kind of tightly connected, I guess. They're, they're sort of web-like in their connections. And they're also complex in that it's hard to understand what's going on inside the systems. It's hard to, you know, send somebody in and understand what's going on deep under the Gulf of Mexico, for example. And these systems are also what, what's called tightly coupled. So they're pretty, they're pretty unforgiving. Once we make an error, that error tends to, tends to snowball, and we can't really step in and stop it. Um, so, you know, that's broadly speaking, that's kind of concerning, right, that a lot of our systems tend to have these properties. But it turns out there's some good news embedded in that, too, which is we can all learn from um, the kind of teams and groups around the world who are approaching these systems in a better way and have managed to to shift their perspective, to to deal with the complexity um, and this kind of lack of forgiveness that we see uh, in many systems across our world. You base a lot of what's in the book on the work of a guy named Chick Perro. Can you walk us back to what his insight was and the era in which he came up with it and how it fast-forwards to where we are today? Yeah, so Chick Perot is just a a fascinating, he's a fascinating man, he's a brilliant thinker, um, and he's kind of an unlikely hero for for our story in a lot of ways. I mean, he was a sociologist who, uh, he he started looking at the Three Mile Island nuclear disaster shortly after it happened in in 1979, and um, I mean, what's fascinating about it, I think, is that, you know, he was a very academic sociologist, he had worked on 
like organization in New England textile mills before that. So he's not somebody that you would necessarily expect to have kind of such a big impact in how, how the world thinks about these kind of disasters. But what Perot looked at after Three Mile Island, you know, the, the kind of official conclusion of the President's Commission was that the Three Mile Island meltdown was caused by operator error. It was caused by problems in how the operators reacted to what was going on in the plant, and, and that was what caused the meltdown. What Perot saw when he looked at this accident was that um, there wasn't one kind of huge shock. There wasn't like a big earthquake or, you know, a big external shock that caused the meltdown. It was this series of small failures that once they happened, they were impossible to kind of take back. You know, it was once the core started melting down, you couldn't put the genie back in the bottle. And the kind of small failures that, that happened were, you know, really simple things like a valve getting stuck in the wrong position or, you know, somebody um, accidentally leaving a, a, a valve to a safety system closed or a light on the control room in the reactor um, in the reactor control room, a light that was showing the wrong thing. It was kind of showing the wrong state of the world. And so what Perot saw was that the the logic of this accident was impossible to understand until, you know, nine months later when this engineering commission had kind of gone through all the details. And so his conclusion was that this this was a systems failure. This was a new kind of accident. And when he did his research in the late 70s, early 80s, there were only a handful of systems that had this kind of ability to fail in this way. There were only a handful of systems that had were complex and tightly coupled. But what we see now is that many, many more systems have kind of moved into this, this danger zone. You know, Chris, uh, more than once, just in the few minutes we've been talking, you've described a lot of our systems as being tight, complex, unforgiving. What role does a lack of slack play in the increase of meltdowns we're seeing? Yeah, I, I think it, it plays a it plays a big role um, that lack of slack and what we you know so lack of slack I mean it's you know or tight coupling as we sometimes put it it sounds like this fancy engineering term but it's really something that all of us can understand and and have you know pretty direct experience with so you know the way I like to think about it is if you're ever changing planes in a big airport and you know you only have 45 minutes to go from one gate to the other. Um, that's a pretty, we talk about that as being a tight, you know, that's a tight connection between those planes. And so what we know is that if there's any weather delays, if there's any mechanical issues, you know, even if whatever, uh, uh, the gate isn't open at the right time um, and our plane can't get in, then we may not make that connection. So, you know, that's kind of this idea of tight coupling uh, in a nutshell that we see in our personal lives. But what we see is over and over again, many of our systems uh, are becoming more tightly coupled. And there are sometimes good reasons for that. You know, uh, businesses like tight coupling because it tends to be more efficient, right? If you think about, um, like, somebody like Target who, you know, has a bunch of goods in warehouses and a bunch of goods in stores. Well, they don't want to have most of their goods in the warehouses. They want to have stuff getting to stores as quickly as they can, which saves them money. They don't have to store a bunch of stuff in warehouses. But what it means is, when there are these small disruptions, they're really hard to recover from. You can't kind of, you can't wind back the clock. You can't, um, you can't fix things. So when you have these disruptions, if you're in a really tightly coupled system, they tend to 
um, be more likely to spiral out of control. Okay, let's take the classic tightly coupled system, flying an airplane. And you have a fascinating piece of the book where you talk about the design philosophy differences between the engineers at Airbus who designed this really gorgeous, sexy cockpit with touch screens. And instead of the big yoke in the middle, you know, that each pilot and co-pilot has that slams them in the gut when they pull back on it, they have a nice little joystick, one on each side of the airplane. And contrast that with the way Boeing's engineers have designed their modern plane cockpits. Yeah, it's a it's a really it's a really striking example. Um, it, it's uh, you know these little side sticks that you described that the Airbus planes have. I mean, they're super sleek. Um, they're extremely sophisticated. They connect to uh, a set of computers that you know helps the plane helps control the plane and can kind of make it so it's very generally speaking very easy for pilots to fly. Um, and they're, you know, they're sleek and elegant. They're off to the side. Uh, one of the pilots that we, we quote in the book talks about how, how much he loves this because he can pull out a tray table and he can eat his lunch on a tray table. You know, it seems like great, great design. But one of the things that those side sticks do is they make it hard to understand what's going on. So if one pilot is making a mistake, if they're, you know, pulling back on the side stick when they should be pushing forward, the other pilot can't tell that. The other pilot can't see that because it's kind of across the cockpit, sort of, um, you know, in, in the corner. And when you contrast that with what goes on in the flight deck of a Boeing airplane, as you said, they have these, you know, huge um, W-shaped control yokes that are on these three-foot-high columns. They even, they're so big that they even have to cut a slit out in the pilot's seats so that when they pull back, it doesn't, get, doesn't hit the seat. And so this, at the at the outside, seems like an extremely inelegant design, but what it does is it adds a lot of transparency to the system. So, as you said, you know, if I'm if I'm flying, when I yank back on the on the control column, the p- other pilot can very quickly and very obviously see what's happening, see what I'm doing, and if I'm making a mistake, they can step in and correct that. And so, what we see is that this clumsy design really. Uh, adds a lot of transparency to the system. And, and, you know, that's actually something that we see over and over again in, in lots of these examples, that the antidote to complexity is not necessarily simplicity. We, you know, we get tremendous capabilities from our systems, but the antidote to complexity is transparency. And, and that's what this is just such a great example of. Well, besides transparency, you also write about used tools that are available to you. And one example that you gave is a great one about ER docs and when they assess a patient as to whether or not their ankle is broken or just sprained. Right, right. Yeah, so for a long time, um, for a long time in the emergency room, you know, doctors would would see a patient um, that came in with a hurt ankle and their kind of go-to was to do an x-ray because that was the easiest way to sort of, um, you know, not underdiagnose them, not send them away for a sprain when they actually had a, had a fracture. But there was a group of physicians who kind of gathered all the data and looked at it and figured out that by just asking four questions um, that these doctors could uh, really figure out in almost all cases who needed an x-ray and who didn't. And these four questions meant that they were able to avoid a tremendous number of, you know, costly, expensive, and potentially harmful x-rays for um, a lot of patients that didn't need it. And one of the things that, that I think is interesting is um, this is actually something that we can all apply in our own lives. You know, what these doctors were doing was making a decision about a situation in which they had pretty limited information, 
Um, but that's pretty similar to lots of decisions we make in our lives. Like, you know, if, we're, if we want to buy a new house, what kind of house we, we um, or which house we should buy, or if we're thinking about, you know, taking a new job and moving to a different city, these are things where we don't make these decisions very often, and, and so we're just, we don't have a lot of practice with it. And kind of thinking of these decisions as a, um, thinking of these decisions much like those doctors ended up doing, trying to come up ahead of time with what are the criteria that we think will be important, and then scoring these decisions based on that criteria, that can really help us. So, you know, in the example of, of buying a home, right, it's so often that if, if we walk into a home, you know, we really love the kitchen or we really love, you know, the, the entryway or whatever, and so we fall in love with the home. But that home may not be the right fit for us. It may not have all of the things that, that we think are important for our family. But if we come up with those things ahead of time and then just score the homes that we see based on these criteria, like, you know, number of bedrooms or does it have two bathrooms, all this type of thing, we're much less likely to get overwhelmed by this kind of emotional resonance that we might have with a particular view or a particular kitchen and rather make a better decision about the whole home. I wish I'd talked to Chris many years ago before I bought that house on 15th Avenue. I bought a nice kitchen. Turned out the rest of the house, not so much. You know, Chris, we're, we live in, a, in an era now where I guess you could say the modern iteration of the Philosopher's Stone is the algorithm. It's inscrutable, and yet it's at the center of everything. How do we, the users of, and in some cases the victims of, these formulas, know what's in the formula, and how do we hope that the people writing them and working from them and building off them have done the kind of thinking you're talking about? Um, so the book, broadly speaking, is pretty optimistic. Um, I will say this is one area where I think that um, what we have to do is we have to be a little bit hopeful that the conversation starts to change. Um, you know, I think what we see happening with Facebook right now is, is a great example of what you're talking about. You know, people, um, I think, didn't really understand that their data were being used and appropriated and misappropriated in the way that they were. Um, and so, you know, what I will say is that I think companies are starting to take this more and more seriously. I mean, you know, Facebook is, is the company in the spotlight right now, but uh, I think we can all be assured that all of the other companies that think uh, have a lot of data on us are thinking very carefully about how those data are used and what are the safeguards that they want to put in place for that. Um, which is good because that means they're, broadly speaking, learning from, from the system. You know, specifically for the Facebooks uh, of the world, I think that there is something really powerful that, that we came across in, in our book, which was there's a lot of organizations that actually are doing a really good job of structuring their decision-making in such a way that they end up getting, um, they end up coming to better conclusions, basically. So, um, Jet Propulsion Labs, you know, they, they shoot rockets to Mars. They do just a fabulous job of incorporating outsiders in their decision-making. And, and I think that that's something that, um, you know, companies that run these big algorithms need to start doing. You know, I think if Facebook had brought, you know, the kind of casual Facebook user in a couple years ago and said, hey, this is how we're thinking about using your data. What do you think about that? 
um, I think as an outsider, that person would have had a much clearer vision on what the broader reaction to that would be. And I think Facebook may not have seen themselves in the situation that they do now. Okay, so this sort of begs for something other than groupthink. This begs for an outsider or a renegade or a rebel or somebody from not even inside the... You know what I mean? This, this, you, you, yeah. you, and, and we talk about diversity a lot in our society today. We usually mean it to mean color or gender, but uh, brought more broadly stated, it means different backgrounds, different levels of expertise, different areas of expertise. Yeah, that's right. And I think that that was one of the things that um, was one of the pieces of research that was most surprising that we came across in the book, which is diversity, as you say, it, whether it's um, skin color or gender, these kind of surface level diversity things, or it's diversity and background helps us make better decisions. It, it, it gives us license to be skeptical and to question these, these assumptions. Um, there's a great piece of research that we came across, which is that during the financial crisis, community banks that had more bankers on their board, they tended to fail more often. So that's a little counterintuitive, right? We tend to think that, you know, bankers should be good at running banks, but it turns out when you had too many bankers on the board, they settled into this group thing. But by by having outsiders, by having, you know, doctors or lawyers, um, community, uh, you know, people from nonprofits uh, like that, you tended to let these boards... Um, disagree and question more and not just kind of go, you know, go along to get along, but ask these better questions. And it, it led to less failure in these banks. And that was pretty, that was pretty surprising. But how do you get out of groupthink? Because aren't we sort of naturally inclined not to speak up to go along with the group? We are absolutely. And, you, you know, there's new research out there that looks at what happens when people disagree. And it, and it turns out that you know, telling your boss that you don't think an idea is good, that kind of leads to the same reaction in your boss as if he or she were to, you know, be going for a walk and to see a bear start running at them, right? I mean, it really gets our adrenaline pumping and it, it, it leads to that fight-flight um, response. And so what, what that means, I think what the takeaway is, is that we need to do a better job of, um, you know, there's a lot of talk about encouraging people to speak up, but I, I think... Actually, the real secret and the real kind of uh, upside is encouraging people to learn how to listen more. And there are great examples of, of industries that have actually done a really good job of teaching people how to listen and how to listen to these kind of voices of concern. Um, and, you know, there's, there's things that we can, we can do or as organizations we can do a better job of encouraging that. There's a story in the book about a sailor who's on an aircraft carrier who drops a tool on the deck during this big exercise, and, and he can't find the tool. And so he reports it, and they have to send planes to different places, and, you know, it's a huge hassle. They scour the deck, and they eventually find the tool. The next day, they hold the ceremony celebrating this guy for his bravery, right? He messed up. He dropped the tool. But they celebrate him for it because of the courage he took in coming forward and saying, I messed this up. And, and that's the shift that we need to see. This week on KCBS In-Depth, an interview from the 10 Questions with Stan and Susan podcast series. Our guest is Chris Clearfield, the co-author of the book Meltdown, Why Our Systems Fail and What We Can Do About It. Chris, can we shift now from business to a little bit more about our personal lives? We have all these gadgets today uh, that are supposed to improve our lives and make it easier, but are smart devices setting us up for a meltdown? I think so, yes, absolutely. And I think there's two aspects to this. I mean, one is we're inviting these devices into our homes, which just adds 
a layer of connection that, that we don't always understand. And I think this is an example of needing to think about both the benefit of something and, you know, and the complexity and, and the cost of it. Um, and so the more things that we connect, the more kind of, the more web-like our lives look and the more likely we are to have these kind of, you know, potentially unexpected failures. I, I think the other aspect of this is there are lots of things in our lives where we don't actually get the choice to connect them. You know, like I have a, 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 a 2016 Subaru. I mean, this is a, a, it's not a fancy car, but I can look up stock prices on, on the car's infotainment system. And it's like, why? Why can I do that? You know, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not a great capability. It really doesn't make any sense. And it comes with internet connectivity. And, and what we know is that when cars are connected to the internet, now suddenly they're part of this whole web. And there's this great example of two security researchers, you know, hackers, but kind of good guys, who figured out how to take control of um, Jeep Grand Cherokees through the cellular connection in their infotainment system. And they could disable the transmission and mess with the steering and, you know, do all this crazy stuff that turns out to be pretty dangerous. So Chrysler had to issue a recall. They had to patch the software. Um, and I think we're going to see more and more of that. And, and we, what we need to see is companies um, sort of ex- more explicitly accounting for the cost of complexity in that way. Chris, we, we introduced you with some quotes about failure, and I want to frame the last question around another quote. This one comes from the eminent philosopher Rocky Bridges, who was a very colorful, longtime minor league baseball guy. Rocky Bridges never became a star. And at one point, uh, he said after a game, I managed good, but boy, did they play bad. And the, the point being, there's a randomness inherent in many enterprises, baseball certainly one of them. Is there so much randomness in everything that efforts to get rid of it are doomed to failure from the get-go? It's a, it's a great question. And actually, we, we talk uh, about kind of randomness and about just the, you know, the, the impossibility of knowing all of the moving parts in our system uh, ahead of time. And, and I think you're absolutely right. I think there's something actually quite, quite deep here. Um, and so one of the things that where this comes out, I think, is looking at how organizations manage crises, right? So we looked at research on, you know, how SWAT teams train and deal with crises, how emergency room doctors, um, you know, uh, figure stuff out on the fly in trauma cases. And the more I looked at this research, the more I realized that um, my morning routine with my then four-year-old, it actually looked a lot like a crisis. Um, you know, random stuff was happening. We couldn't figure out what was going on. Nobody knew where the jackets or shoes were, you know, all this kind of thing. And so when I was looking at this research, what, what I started to do, what we started to do as a family is we started to have these short weekly meetings where we just asked three questions. You know, what, what went well last week? What didn't go well? And what do we want to try next week? And I think that that's a great example of kind of a simple approach being able to dramatically change um, how well something is working. Because you're exactly right. We can't know everything. We can't, you know, predict all of the different parts of it. But what we can do is we can treat our systems as these opportunities for learning. And we can learn from them and be a little bit more reflective. You know, for us, a five-minute meeting every week that turns out to be an effective way to do this. And, and our morning routines have gotten a lot more smooth. And it's interesting that that's exactly what kind of, um, you know, top professionals in, in fields dealing with crises all the time do. 
Again, you've been listening to an interview conducted for the 10 Questions with Stan and Susan podcast. Our guest has been Chris Clearfield, the co-author of the new book, Meltdown, Why Our Systems Fail and What We Can Do About It. As for the podcast, 10 Questions with Stan and Susan, you can find it at radio.com and iTunes, among other places. I'm Stan Bunger. You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program for all news 740 and FM 106.9 KCBS. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 